As I'm sure many of you have heard by now, uh, this week Father Vetter, formerly the rector of our cathedral and priest of our diocese, was ordained a bishop, so now he's Bishop Vetter. This past Wednesday he was ordained. Um, if you do get a chance, his ordination and the Vespers service the night before is on, it's on YouTube, the miracle 21st century stuff, right? It's on YouTube already. And so if you do get a chance, uh, it, it's a nice thing to watch and see. You can skip through the boring parts and get to the important stuff. The Pope sends a letter to the person to be ordained uh, a bishop. It's personalized. It's not, a, not like a standard uh, form letter. It's personalized to that person to be ordained and authorizes him to be ordained. So stuff like that is read at the ordination and such. Uh, and so it's actually an interesting uh, thing to watch. Um, I do want to make a brief plea, as I think Bishop Vetter would want, to remember him in prayer and to continue to pray for him. I remember when I was ordained uh, a deacon, uh, it was a huge day, and in, in some ways when you're preparing for the priesthood, your diaconate ordination is, is the biggest moment. All the important promises uh, that a priest lives are taken at his diaconate ordination, stuff like celibacy, promise of prayer, and the, and the best one, the bishop's favorite obedience to the bishop. That's all taken at the diaconate. And the first thing I did after my diaconate ordination, when I was finally uh, by myself after all the excitement and such, was uh, to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally worn out after the morning and the, and the liturgy and stuff, and I took a big nap, about a half hour long. And then I woke up, and the, my first thought was utter confusion, like where am I and what's going on? But then my second thought was, wow, I'm actually a deacon. I made sacred promises before God that I have to keep now. I better get off my couch, you know? And so if that was the case for a diaconate ordination, you can about imagine what's going on in Bishop Vetter's heart and mind as he wakes up and realizes, wow, I'm a bishop. I'm supposed to take the place of an apostle. I'm supposed to guide the church there are big challenges here. There are big obligations here. And so, too, uh, do remember to pray for him. Everyone today, today is the feast of Christ the King. And it turns out that kingship is really, really essential to understanding who Jesus is. When you read the Gospels, kingship comes out again and again and again. And in fact, once Jesus starts preaching, the first thing he says is the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first thing out of his mouth. It's even important to understanding what's going on when Jesus is arrested and crucified. When Jesus is arrested, he is first charged with blasphemous stuff, with religious stuff, you threaten the temple, you claim to be the son of God, stuff like that. But the Romans don't really care about those things. The government didn't really care about that stuff. And so when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, they charged him with claiming to be a king opposed to Caesar. They accused him of opposing giving taxes to Caesar. That makes the Roman governor, that makes his ears perk up. That makes him pay attention. It wouldn't be any different now either. If I started walking around saying, I'm the son of God, I will die and three days later be raised, I don't think the government or the IRS would really care much. But if I started preaching from the pulpit, taxes optional. You don't have to pay them. The IRS, I think, would start listening and paying attention. So it wasn't any different. But isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? What 
got Jesus killed in some sense, what led to his death in some sense, was the idea that he threatened government control. And that's what got him killed. The government felt threatened by him. You sometimes do hear the idea that Jesus was a political revolutionary. He was not. The government did feel threatened by him, but he wasn't a political revolutionary. In fact, he was falsely accused of being so. The Gospels themselves make totally clear again and again that after Jesus' great works, after his miracles and his words, that they, the people would come and try to make Jesus king. But Jesus repeatedly had that opportunity, but he would refuse. He would not take an earthly crown. Jesus, of course, and Christians throughout the centuries had no problem critiquing and challenging the powers that be. He had no problem criticizing kings and rulers and leaders. But his goal wasn't anarchy. His goal was not revolution. And his goal wasn't an earthly crown. His goal the entire time was to establish the kingdom of God. In fact, if we go back to Jesus' passion, his kingship, the fact that people understood Jesus to be a king, that was the place that the soldiers and the people most mocked and made fun of Jesus. The soldiers, in order to mock Jesus, gave Jesus royal clothes to wear as they beat and spit at him. They dressed him up in royal clothes just so that they could spit at him while he was dressed like a king. They placed, of course, famously, they placed the crown of thorns around his head. The gospel today says the rulers, the kings, the leaders, the rulers sneered at Jesus and said, he saved others, let him save himself. Another person at the scene said in the gospel today, if you are the king of the Jews, if you're really a king, then save yourself, prove it. The inscription above Jesus said in the three main languages of the day, this is the king of the Jews, and it said it to mock him. One of the criminals crucified with Jesus, again in the gospel today, says, are you not the Christ? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. The place Jesus was constantly and consistently mocked and attacked and made fun of as he suffered for the salvation of the world was his authority, was his power, was his kingship. Everyone, Jesus is most king. Jesus is most king when he is on the cross. Jesus is the greatest king that lives even now. There is no limit to his authority. It extends to every time and to every place. There is no part of life, not even government life, not even political life, that Jesus' kingship doesn't matter. There's no part of life that's irrelevant to the fact that Jesus is king of the universe and that he reigns from the cross. And all of this is most true. Jesus is most king when he's on the cross. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, when he's most king, and when he's getting mocked for it, everyone who's there at the scene of the crucifixion is getting it precisely backwards. They say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you're really a king, prove it. 
If you're really king, save yourself, therefore it will know you're king. But it's precisely because Jesus refuses to save himself. It's precisely because Jesus refuses to save himself, but willingly offers himself to the Father. That's the way that Jesus saves. You see how it's precisely backwards. They say, if you're king, save yourself. No. Jesus responds, I will not save myself, and therefore I am king. Therefore I can save others. Therefore I can save souls. Therefore I can be king of your souls. In fact, everyone, the only one who seems to get that, the only one who seems to understand that in that moment is the good thief. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The good thief at the moment of his own death, at the moment of his own conversion, confesses that Jesus is king. He confesses that Jesus has a kingdom, and he asks for a place in that kingdom. This guy gets it. The good thief gets it. His hope becomes not so much for being delivered from his own cross that he has earned, but the good thief's hope becomes to be delivered from his sins. That's where his hope goes, to be delivered from his sins. And he places that hope to be delivered from sin in the authority of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus as king. And so he is in fact saved. Everyone, this isn't the, the type of king that we normally expect. This is not what we normally think of when we think of a king or a ruler. And it's not the type of king that the world normally asks for, but it is the type of king that we need. We need a king precisely who refuses to save himself. That's the type of king we need, who refuses to save himself and so saves others. We need a king whose authority is bigger than taxes. Jesus, of course, he doesn't mandate a particular type of government. He doesn't mandate a particular way of doing taxes. But that's not because his authority is less than taxes. His authority isn't less than taxes. His authority isn't even irrelevant to taxes. It's not irrelevant. But his authority is more than. His authority is bigger than taxes. The world doesn't normally ask for a king like that. The world doesn't normally look for a king whose authority is bigger than taxes, but that's precisely what we need. We need a king who has authority over sin. That's the type of king that we need, ultimately. A king who has authority over sin, who can release from sin, and thus a king who can save and can rule over the soul.